is the life of man. Always was since the world began. Whiskey, oh Johnny, oh, rise up from down below. Whiskey, 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 oh, couple up this yard must go. John, rise up from down below. Oh, whiskey is the life of man. Whiskey from an old tin can. Whiskey, oh Johnny, oh, rise up from down below. Charge your still with the brandy, mace, cloves, nuts, cinnamon coriander seeds, ginger and cubebs, adding five or six gallons of liquor and draw off your goods very gently and no longer than proof. And against your still comes to work, prepare ready the English saffron, well dissevered and put into a linen cloth and hung at the worm's end, whereby all the goods running through the saffron, which must oftentimes be turned over and over, all the tincture will be extracted and run among the distilled goods. In the interim, take the raisins and dates and stone them and scrape the licorice and slice them all very thin and put them into an earthen pot with three gallons of liquor and covered with thick cap paper and set to stand in a moderate oven five or six hours. Then let it stand till it be fully cold and strain it into the goods drawn from the still and with liquor make up the ten gallons wanting from the still, dissolving your sugar therein, and add it to your goods, which, when well mixed together, must stand eight or ten days in a cask with a cock in it to become clear, and then put into your cask for sale. A glass of whiskey all around, and a bottle full for the shanty man. Whiskey, oh Johnny, oh, rise her up from down below. Whiskey, 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 oh, pull up this yard must go. John, rise her up from down below. You would think, hearing about whiskey, that it was a native. Well, it's not. Whiskey probably was distilled for the first time in Ireland during the 15th century. And the first man who is recorded to have died of drinking of it was a Macaranal chief from what is now County Leitrim. Uh, about 1450, the foremasters say, in recording his death, Ni ishkabaha do avi ak ishkabais. It wasn't water of life for him, but water of death. But then, about uh, over a hundred years later, uh, there was a certain Thomas Smith later Lord Mayor of Dublin, or Mayor of Dublin, an Englishman who, when he was mayor, laid the foundation stone of Trinity. Well, he was an apothecary, and his uh, place of business contained a distilling apparatus. But what he distilled, I don't know. Now, the most famous place for making whiskey that I knew in the west of Ireland was the island of Inish Murray. And... Everybody knew that the whisky made in Inish Murray was far better than any other. And the explanation given was that somebody from a Dublin distillery, from Powers, I think, arrived in Inish Murray sometime in the last century and got friendly with the king of the island, a man, Turisk, Mr. Waters. Well, the king and himself uh, had a talk about whisky making and when 
the man from Dublin returned, he sent a very special apparatus to his friend on Inish Murray, and that was why Inish Murray made such excellent whisky. Uh, when the island was evacuated, the wonderful apparatus was buried in the bog there on Inish Murray, and I presume it is still there. And of course, when anybody was making whisky, when the first drops came from the still, they were always let run on the ground. That was the tribute for the fairies. And if uh, that wasn't done, the fairies would uh, take measures uh, to see that the brood or the product wasn't so good. For instance, when a fishing crew got a good catch, they would celebrate it by getting a bottle of whiskey. And uh, always, at first, the little was poured out for the fairies. But on an occasion when that didn't happen, and the man who had the last drop of it uh, was told, well, he says, they won't get any of this, the fairies. So he raised the glass to his lips, and as he did, the bottom fell out of it, it all fell on the ground, and he got none of it, whatever the fairies got. Ishkebaha, the water of life, changing with time simply to Ishka, and then anglicised from Ishka to whisky. At least, that's the story of how whisky got its name, and frankly, it doesn't really matter whether that's fact or fiction. Whisky remains whisky. Mind you, it may not have started as whisky, because way back in the year 374 BC, there's mention of the distillation of flowers for the making of perfumes. Then, somewhere about 500 AD, the missionary monks are credited with bringing it to Ireland, and it's here that Henry II found it to his liking in the 12th century. A few hundred years later, the intrepid tobacco and potato inventor Walter Raleigh dropped in at Yall on his way to, well, wherever he was going, and took on board a 32-gallon cask of Irish whisky. Peter the Great of Russia described it in these terms, Of all the wines, the Irish is the best, which was a nice thing for Peter to say. In Ireland, it was illicit distillers who were the pioneers of the whisky trade. They made it from malt without adulteration, and it went like a bomb. In the years 1811 to 1813, no less than 19,067 illicit distilleries were destroyed by the revenue and the military. There's no record of the number that escaped, but at any rate, it was then that the government stepped in and decided to licence only stills of a certain minimum size. And this, of course, resulted in a rationalisation of the distilling industry here. Up to the early 1960s, we had separate distilling groups in Ireland, including John Jemison, Power, Old Bush Mills, which incidentally is the oldest licensed distillery in the world, Tullamore, and so on. And then in 1966, they all came together to form the giant Irish Distillers Group Limited, and that's the way it is to this day. At their huge new distilling complex at Middleton in County Cork, automation is very much in evidence, but some old crafts still remain, like coopering. Please tell me what you're doing now, banging those casts with your, what looks to me like a hammer, but it's not, is it? It's, it's a tool called an adze. A cooper's adze. A cooper's adze. What are you doing banging those casts? Sounding them. For to, what? To see if is there, uh, is there any leakages. And would you know by the sound? Oh, you would, easily. Would you know how full the casts are by the sound? I would, yeah. You'd even get used to it and tell you where the, the liquid level is almost, you know? 
Being a cooper at Middleton, uh, do you actually make new casts here now? No, not in Middleton. <coughs> new casts are made in mostly, uh, they're made in Cork and Dublin. The new casts. New casts. So what's your job as a cooper here? Do you repair uh, damaged ones? No. Any damaged casts will be in our glass, we send them back to the cooperages. Well, what is your job here in the distillery then? The job now in the distillery is, uh, actually there are four of us here in Middleton. One, one supervises the uh, the discarding of cask. What does that mean? That means that the, the cask are emptied into troughs and pumped into receivers. And you so have to be pumped into tanks cask. and we have to open the cask and also examine the cask. And uh, there's a cooper constantly hoop driving then on a machine. When you say hoop driving, do you mean that the hoops may become loose? Something? That's correct. What uh, would make them loose? Well, weather, I'd say, mostly. But, so, uh, so you have to see they're tightened up? You have to see they're tightened up before they go into the filling area. There's another cooper in, on the filling area. That's actually And the filling heads, in. exactly, yeah, bunging the cask. And the fourth one? And the fourth one then is usually in uh, examination and repair in the warehouses. Middleton Cooper, Barry Creedon. So our next call in Middleton was to a warehouse where, against a background of a working forklift truck, we talked to spirit store and warehousing manager Brendan Monks. We have on site here in Middleton uh, 14 warehouses, and these will contain approximately 100,000 casks. How much in each cask? This would depend on the type of cask. We use three casks in our warehousing process. Uh, one is the Butt, Hogshead and American Barrel. In the last number of years, we're tending to specialise on the American Barrel, and this is an American Barrel warehouse you're now in at the moment. You say American. Is that the only source of your casks? Traditionally, uh, the stilling industry used to purchase casks from the continent. These have dried up in the last number of years. And the tendency, both here and in the world generally, is to use American uh, whiskey barrels. We don't make our casks here, but the barrels which you see in this warehouse have been manufactured here in Ireland in our two cooperages, one in Dublin and one in Cork. You seem to be very highly mechanised. I see this uh, little forklift truck. Is this a new thing in Middleton? This is a new concept of warehousing, which I think we can say that we are pioneering here in this part of the world. And... Uh, we stack casks, these American barrels, five high on pallet. Once they're filled and taken in here and put up on these uh, pallets, how long would they live here? This would depend on the age of, not sorry, correction, not on the age, but on the type of whiskey. Uh, we manufacture a number of different types of whiskey here in Middleton, and it would depend on this, the length of time in warehouse. Well, do you actually touch them from the time they're put down as these are put up on pallets? No, these casts would stay here from the time they go in till they're taken out for disgorging uh, for ship, the whiskey then for shipment to our bottling plants. No sampling at any stage? There will be close to the end of its warehousing period. The casts will be sampled by our quality control people in order that we can have our correct formulation for our different types of whiskey. Now, are these all under bond? Yes. All our warehouses are under CNE control. That means you may not touch them, is that correct? That is also correct, and we can't even gain access to our warehouses unless we're accompanied by a CNE official. The whole system of warehousing and bonding of spirits is a story in itself. 
We talked about it briefly to Mr Eamon Fitzpatrick, the surveyor of customs and excise and an official of the revenue commissioners. First I wondered how much money would be paid into the exchequer per annum for whisky made in Ireland. Well, in the last uh, available year I have, the receipts to the exchequer from home-produced whisky was £44.4 million approximately. And how much duty would that be per bottle? Supposing I paid, say, £6 for a bottle of Irish whisky retail, how much of that would be going to the uh, revenue commissioners? Uh, something over £4 per bottle, or approximately 70% of the total... 70%? 70% of the total price of the bottle. Would you give us a brief history of excise duty paid on spirits made here? Well, very briefly, the duty of excise on spirits was first imposed by the Parliament of the Commonwealth in 1643, presumably to pay for the Commonwealth wars in those years. And, of course, from you can gather from that it's a very ancient excise duty, one of the most ancient. We were at Middleton Distilleries and uh, we had a brief look at... Uh, spirits uh, in cask and locked away in bond. Would you explain for us, please, the system of bonding? Well, bonding, or warehousing as we call it, is a system of suspending the duty on a a product that is chargeable with duty, but my remarks here refer only to whisky. And it started first in 1823 as a method of both controlling the duty uh, on spirits and also uh, relieving the producer on, of immediate payment of the excise duty on the spirits, which were very high in those days and still are. Very briefly, a warehouse is a premises or a place approved by the revenue commissioners for the deposit free of duty of, say, whisky and cask, and the producer then does not have to pay the duty until the whisky finally leaves the warehouse for home consumption, as we call it, for his market. So he, he, But he may not do that until he has paid it. He may not put it on the market until he's paid the duty on it. Oh, no. It mustn't leave the premises. And do you therefore keep a tight control on the exact amount of uh, spirits produced by the distiller? Oh, yes. Very tight. And what about raw materials? Are you involved at that stage? Oh, we are, yes. We have what's known as a presumptive charge of, on materials that go into the distilling product, into the distiller's inputs. But we're more, con- more interested in the spirit side of the business to on the final product more or less. Well let me ask you this Eamon, is, it, is your control such as to make it impossible for a distiller to be able to distill some spirits and sell them without telling you? Our control is uh, both um, reasonable from the point of view of the producer and it is also um, tight enough to safeguard the revenue. Back at Middleton and at the top of the high and somewhat noisy distillation house there, we had the scene explained to us by the general superintendent at Middleton Distillers, Sandy Ross. Sandy, we're standing up here on a platform looking down at what looks to me like uh, four coppers, are they? Four copper stills. And how much in each of those? Uh, 16,000, just over 16,000 gallons to each still. How many brands of whisky do you produce? Well, we produce a total of approximately 18 brands, different, completely different brands here in Middleton. Do they all start at the production line at the same point? I mean, when they begin with water and malt and so on, are they all the same? Yes, but each, um, each batch varies uh, considerably. One uh, reason being our different mixes of mesh, that is the raw materials, the different process in the brewing side, also, we have various different types of distillation that we have in this uh, still house here. 
As far as the consumer is concerned, what does this result in? Difference in flavour or difference? Difference in flavour, difference in, flavor, difference in, in appearance. In fact, that each brand retains its own character completely. And that is the proof, and that is our set of many satisfied customers all over the world. Well, is flavour the only thing that differs? Uh, not necessarily appearance, but flavour, certainly, and quality, of course, uh, is the, 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 the main uh, uh, difference. Is it because you add something to each brand or take something from each brand that makes the difference well, in flavour? Well, it's difficult really to say yes or no on that. The uh, quick answer to that would be yes, but the main difference would be the different types of distillation. In fact, we have such a various combinations of dis uh, distilling in this building. It is actually like playing tunes on a, p on a piano. You can actually produce a whole various different types of whiskey in this distillers. It's a whole series of distilleries within one. Do you blend whiskies here? No, we do not blend whiskey in Middleton Distillery. You now working in this distillery, how long have you been here? Well, uh, I, I will say by giving a little secret away, I'm here 54 years. And was your father here before you? Well, I must uh, sort of mention the fact the reason I'm here 54 years because I was actually born in the distillery. You were born here? Yes, How did that come about? Well, my father was a distiller here uh, before and uh, I was actually born in the house down in the old distillery. And then the reason I was born at home, my grandfather happened to be the doctor. So uh, I presume that's the reason that... Uh, this event occurred at, at home in the house. Well, how far back does your family go in the distillery? Uh, as far as I remember, it's the first Sandy Ross came to Middleton Distillery in August 1855. How many people work here altogether at the moment? Oh, something in the region of about 120. Would many of those go back to their father? Quite, quite a lot of them would indeed. In fact, all practically all the lads here, I well remember their fathers or grandfathers were working in the old distillery. Richard Burrows is Managing Director of the Irish Distillers Group Limited and one of the questions I asked him was if his many brands of Irish whisky are not, in fact, competing with each other. Um, well, obviously they, they are competing to a certain extent with one another in this country, um, but I'd have to go back to the, uh, to the formation of the group to give you an answer, really, to the question. Um, the group came together, uh, formed from the uh, four remaining uh, distilling companies in Ireland, uh, in order to compete effectively in export markets. Um, so the number of brands that we have is largely historical, um, and each brand does have its own uh, loyal consumers in this country um, who are unlikely to change from one brand to another. Uh, we feel that we uh, must go on supplying uh, those consumers with the brand that they prefer uh, in order to do the job that we intend to do in export markets. So there's no intention of cutting down the number of brands? No, not at all. Well, we took Richard Burrows at his word about the Irish whisky drinkers' demands and choice of brands, and we decided to set up a test. Now, many drinkers of Irish whisky are quite certain that they can easily recognise their own favourite brand and can pick it out without any problem. In our test, we set up nine glasses on a pub counter and put a half of whisky into each. We used seven different brands of Irish whisky, plus one scotch, and then the ninth was a mixture of a paddy and a bushmills. We invited Brendan Tierney, who is in charge of quality control at Irish Distillers Limited, to identify each of the nine whiskies. But before the test began, I had a few words with Brendan Tierney. 
How would you go about tasting uh, a glass of whiskey if I put it in front of you? What I mean by that is, do you go by sight, by smell, <coughs> by flavour? How do you start? Well, obviously, there's a little bit of everything in this because um, when you say by sight, obviously, if the whiskey doesn't look well, you're not going to get around to tasting it or smelling it because you're going to be sort of put off in the first place. So, psychologically, the... Um, Appearance is all important. Second, but just holding on to appearance, would you know from the uh, colour what type of whisky it was? Not really, but you would. Uh, the, 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 it's, it's basically a psychological effect. So that, that one expects a certain amber glow from whisky, and if that is absent, well, then the um, there's, there's, there's a psychological negative to the whole approach. So what do you do now? Take it from there. Well, at that stage, uh, the first thing is that uh, there. You don't normally taste or examine whiskey at full bottling strength. It is reduced by about to about half and half with water. And the first thing is the aroma. Now, the aroma of whiskey is all important, again, on the basis that uh, aroma and taste are so closely associated that the aroma can give you a lot of information that taste will subsequently confirm. Can it give you all the information? I not mean, can, you, can you do it by smell alone? Not really, no, because... Uh, the um, the uh, the smell is an indication of the flavour, but I mean whiskey is made for drinking, not for smelling. So the smelling is is just a shortcut to um, an indication of the aroma of the, uh, of the final flavour. So then, do you go through the motions of putting it into your mouth? Yes. It, like when you sample wine, people train you in sampling of wines to roll it around your mouth all right. over the place. Is that the same with whiskey? It's very much the same because there are the different parts of the mouth and throat experience different taste sensations and uh, in order to get the full uh, effect of the uh, drinking of, of, of whiskey one must sort of expose all of these sort of olfactory systems as they're called to uh, the sensation of the of, of the whiskey. Well, Brendan, as you know, we've set up a small test for you here today, and uh, just on balance, how accurate would you expect to be uh, sampling, say, ten brands of Irish whiskey one after another? Well, uh, it, it, I would prejudge <laughs> myself at this stage, but I would expect to be reasonably good. But of course, it has to be stated that there is a day-to-day -day variation in anybody's aptitude. And uh, that is the reason we have taste panels, as distinct from the individual. The, the day of the loop-the-loop um, -loop, uh, taster single one-man uh, band exercise is, is, is gone, I'm afraid. But I would hope to be reasonably good. I have no excuse to make <laughs> today. Uh, well, would you expect to get 10 out of 10? Well, um, I have to leave that. <laughs> All right, we'll see how we get on. Right, thank you. And then on to the tasting test. In all, it lasted 20 minutes and we had a word with Brendan Tierney at odd moments during the operation. Now, at no time did he actually taste any of the whiskies. The whole test was done by smell alone. After an initial smell of all nine whiskies, he began to settle down to more prolonged smelling. Now, we're moving along. It's number eight we're at the moment. Well, number eight is a scotch-type whisky. Shall I put that one out there? So, we're moving... Now, would it help you at this stage if I told you when you're right and when you're wrong? Yes. All right. You're absolutely right about number eight. It is a scotch. Right. Do you want to eliminate that from the race now? Yes. You take that away, if you would, right. please, number eight. Now you're left. Well, number six, I said, um, is not a straight whiskey. 
Is it a product of Irish distillers it or not? It could very well be a product called Mulligan of Irish distillers. It is, in fact, Mulligan. Right. And uh, well done. That's a difficult one, so we'll take that out. Right. Now, number five, I think I said was a Scotch type whiskey, but I would say it's probably not a Scotch type, it's probably Bushmills. You're absolutely right, it is Bushmills. Can I press you that little bit further and ask you, is it black or white? (laughs) (laughs) I would say it's probably probably white Bushmills. You're absolutely right. Well done. It's Bushmills white. Now, sample number four is, again, a Scotch-type whiskey. It may very well be and probably is Blackbush. You're absolutely right, it is. I would say that sample number three is a Jemison type whiskey. Yes, it is a Jemison type whiskey. I would hazard a guess that it probably is Jemison 12 or 15 year old. Let me say it is a red dress, so you right. are uh, absolutely. You, I couldn't say that you're incorrect, let me put it that way. Well, I did. All right, you're four, four to go. Now we have sample number nine. This is a southern a cork distiller's product, and I would hazard a guess that it is probably uh, Hewitt's. May we leave that aside for the moment right. and ask you about the other three? Okay. Sample number one is probably Paddy. It is Paddy. Yes, correct again. Sample number, whatever this remaining sample is, we've lost numbers at this stage, is probably is probably a gold label. No, sorry, I would reverse it. I would say the sam- this sample number two yes. is probably part of gold label. Yes, sam- it is gold label. Sample number right. three is probably a, another Jemison product, probably a Red Sea, Jemison Red Sea. But I wouldn't be altogether sure about it because my notes, frankly, at this stage is just about gone. It is Jemison. You're absolutely right. It's red breast. Well. All right. Now, that last one, which is, sorry, I have to warn you, is a maverick. Yeah. And well, I'm going to help you, if I may, and say to you that it is partly paddy. It has partly paddy, but it has definite Scotch-type flavour to it, so I'd say it's probably a mixture of paddy Game, and Game set and match to you. It's paddy and bushmills. Well, yes. Well, well, yes. Well, that was an unbelievably good performance by Brendan Tierney, and amongst other things, it justified what Richard Burroughs had said. So I went back to Mr Burroughs and put it to him that he now had a virtual monopoly of Irish whisky here, and I asked him if he thought this was a good thing. Well, I don't particularly uh, uh, like the word monopoly, and that used in that sense. Um, As I've said to you, the the remaining distilling companies did come together uh, in the 60s in order to form a strong distilling company, Uh, with the ability to go and compete in export markets. Um, Now, at that time, each one of the distilling companies was of a size uh, that would have ruled out its effective competition in in export markets. So I think uh, it had to happen that way. But you're not afraid that monopoly will make you complacent? Uh, I don't think we're complacent at all. We recognise very well the international competition that we're up against. Um, Principally, we're... Uh, we're fighting for our share of the whisky market against the Scotch whisky industry, which is many, many times larger than the Irish whisky business. Could I pick on an overseas market at random North America and suggest to you that uh, Scotch uh, vastly outsells Irish whisky in North America? Why are you so far behind? 
Well, well, first of all, I'd agree with you that Scotch in North America uh, is very much bigger than Irish whiskey. Why are we so much further behind? Uh, probably because we've started very much later than the Scotch whiskey distillers. Um, nonetheless, I think it's interesting to look at what's happened over the last couple of years when the whiskey market in America has been relatively static and Irish whiskey has, uh, has done very well in the past couple of years in North America. So I would think that from a very much smaller base um, in a few years' time, uh, we will be a factor in the North American whiskey market. You sell Irish whiskey in North America, both as Irish whiskey, but also, if I may put it, wrapped up in things like Irish coffee. Do you mind which way you sell it? Irish coffee is a very important uh, element in the sales of our Irish whiskey in North America. But uh, our whole marketing strategy is to try and persuade people to drink Irish whiskey in the way that they would normally drink whiskey. Uh, that is on the rocks or with a drop of water or soda uh, or indeed in a, a mixed cocktail. And uh, evidence to date is that, that we're being successful in this. Um, we are, uh, to an ever-increasing degree, uh, getting people to drink Irish whiskey straight. Your marketing strategy in a market like the United States, uh, do you sell by brand or do you want people to come in and ask for an Irish? At the moment, our strategy is very much geared to the development of our brands. Um, we're pro promoting particularly uh, Old Bushmills and Jemison. Those are our two leading brands in the USA. What uh, percentage of your total output uh, here would be exports? Um, this year, very nearly half, uh, just a little under half, in fact. Is that rising? Yes, it is. Uh, only a couple of years ago, um, about two-thirds of our business was in the domestic market. Is the United States your biggest overseas market? Our biggest and uh, the one where we think we have the most potential for the long run. It's a very big market. Um, people there are very well disposed towards things Irish, and we think there's a great future for Irish whiskey there. The chairman of the Irish Distillers Group is Frank O'Reilly. In his office the other day, I had a word or two with him about his job, and I began by asking him how the O'Reilly name became involved with distilling in Ireland. My grandmother was a power, and she married uh, an O'Reilly, obviously, and he came into the distilling industry in two powers in 1886, I think, just about three years before the word gold label was bottled. And had the O'Reillys any connection with distilling up to then? None, whatever. In fact, the family originally came from Longford. Now, a lot of uh, your brands are called a lot of different names, but none of them called O'Reilly. Is that deliberate? No, thank God. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a good name for a whiskey brand, though. No. Power is. The merger of all the companies, Powers, Jemisons, and all the others in the 60s, that must have caused you some heart-searching, did it? Yes. Um, in fact, we started to think about the merger in 1964, and it came to fruition in 1966. Basically, why? It was essential, in my mind, for the then four remaining companies in Ireland to get together as one unit to deal with the then... Um, about to end Anglo-Irish um, free trade situation and, of course, the coming of the EEC. So basically it was to get together to ward off the invasion from imports, A, and more importantly still to get ahead in the export fields of the world. Well, did you not regret having to surrender some of your ancient rights, as it were? 
I suppose there's always regret, but I have to say this, I think the spirit in Irish distillers today, right through the whole lot, is the same as it was in the old individual distillers before. I think the name, the Irish name, Uskavaha, gives the clue to the use of whiskey in Ireland, the water of life. And I found a very nice 17th century quote about this, which says that whiskey was for the preservation of health, the prolongation of life, and the relief of colic, dropsy, palsy, and smallpox, as well as a host of other ailments. Well, that covers pretty well everything. An interesting thing is that on the island of Lewis, off the Scottish coast, in the 19th century, tea drinking was thought to be sinful. And many doctors denounced tea, I think because of the tannin in it, as causing trembling and shaking of the head and hands, loss of appetite and other diseases. And the day there was always started with what was known as a scalch of whiskey, which sounds a very good way to start in a cold climate, I must say. And certainly in my lifetime it was used as a medicine. I come from the Tipperary and Clare border, and whatever you had wrong with you, colds or chills, broken bones, whatever, you had hot whiskey and lemon and cloves, or hot whiskey and milk, and if you were a horse you got hot whiskey in your mash, and if you were a dog you just got it poured down your throat, and it was just a general universal cure-all, which I think it had been so for many centuries. And in, with regard to food, it was certainly used in place of brandy by the Irish people as against um, the Anglo-Irish or the aristocracy using brandy in their dishes for flaming foods or for adding to cakes and um, many other dishes. Thackeray in his Irish sketchbook, which was published in 1843, writes of having many dishes with whiskey in them and whiskey punch after almost all meals, particularly at the Salt Hill Hotel in Dunleary, and also at a big dinner he attended in Killarney. And of course there is a traditional Dublin recipe called Dublin Lawyer, which stems from the early 19th century, probably late 18th century, which is lobster um, cooked with cream, and this is flambéed with Irish whiskey. And jolly good it sounds. It's very similar to the French lobster à la crème, which has brandy in it, but here it very definitely has the Irish whiskey. And, of course, in cakes and puddings, it was always used instead of brandy by the Irish. Irish whiskey cake is very well known and um, still used today, of course, similar recipes for Christmas cakes and Christmas puddings. And the pudding was always flamed with whiskey and not brandy, as it was in other countries. And a very interesting um, little tailpiece is a recipe I came upon in the very famous French encyclopedia La Rousse Gastronomique. And this is called Herring Sar à l'Irlandaise, which is Irish smoked herrings. And I'll read the recipe in full because it's very curious and it must certainly have been a very traditional thing in the, in the early years of this century for it to have entered into a book such as the La Rousse. And it's wash and dry the herrings. Cut off heads and split them in half lengthwise. Spread out flat in a deep dish. Cover with whiskey and set light to them. When the whiskey is all burnt away and the flame extinguished, the herrings are ready for eating. And jolly good it was too, I should think. But I would say that whiskey was very much cheaper than it is today. I was about to say that when it comes to whiskey with an E, that is mostly Irish whiskey, there is one whiskey that doesn't have an E, that the drinking of Irish whiskey for a travelled man like myself, who has travelled, uh, shall we say, but only in whiskey countries, drinking Irish whiskey is a matter of national pride. 
And in foreign countries, one is always inclined to say to strangers, drink Irish whiskey, it is the best whiskey. Um, my own um, theory is there is a certain whiskey made in that part of Ireland from which I come that I think is not only the oldest but the best, but I can't go into that at the moment. Uh, what interests me about the approach of the Irish to Irish whiskey comes in singing and in song. There was a famous old harper once who was playing for the gentry and when wine was offered to him he said, the songs I sing and the tunes I play go better with whiskey. That is important. One of my favourite books is Celtic Irish Songs and Songwriters, a selection with an introduction and memoirs by Charles McCarthy Collins, M.R.I.A., Barrister at Law, published in 1885 in London by James Cornish and in Dublin by Combridge, late of Grafton Street, then at, at Grafton Street. Now, the interesting thing about this book is that uh, it begins with biographical introductions to the songwriters, then it goes in three sections, drinking songs, patriotic songs and love songs, Drinking comes first. I am not recommending, you know, people to drink on this account, but it is the arrangement of songs there is interesting. Drinking comes first, patriotism, then love. Now, about whiskey with an E, there was the famous Coleraine whiskey, made in Coleraine in the north of Ireland, which may have been absorbed by the Bushmills Distillery, I must have been one of the last people in Dublin to sample this Coleraine whiskey, which, as far as I remember, although it had a slightly Scottish flavour, was spelt with an E. But there's a very famous story told about it by Stephen Gwynne in his Highways and Byways in Donegal and Antrim, when during the Great Father Matthew campaign, a parish priest in that neighbourhood was reproached for not lecturing the people about temperance and wisdom in relation to drink, he said, I always lecture them about temperance and wisdom in relation to drink. I always suggest to them to drink the best Coleraine whiskey. This seems to me to have that unsouciant, you know, attitude towards whiskey that I think the Irish had. I think perhaps it can be carried too far. Uh, Raftery in the Kashmir and Fotherilish when he says, A humra the Yilish or Haikme Mahiliath. Well, I suppose for a blind poet wandering the roads, the whisky was a great consolation and a great warmth, perhaps, in cold winter days. Whiskey, oh, Johnny, oh, rise up from down below. Whiskey, 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 oh. Pull up this yard, must go to rise up from down below. A glass of whiskey all around and a bottle full for the shanty man. Whiskey, oh, Johnny, oh, rise up from down below. Whiskey, 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 oh, pull up this yard, must go, John, rise up from down below.